You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1976, and Amy, we're almost done talking about a hundred films. We're going to need a bigger podcast. The movie, Jaws. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Timeless 2007 edition to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch today. In this episode, we'll be talking about Jaws. But before we get into that, we're going to go back to see what you thought about It Happened One Night. Also, Amy, this is it. This is our... I mean, our penultimate episode of the first season of Unspooled. I mean, this is the time to get your merch. This is your time to head over to Podswag, get that amazing Scott C. poster. This is your chance to get your AFI AF shirts on tpublic.com because we are getting ready to rebrand season two, new photos, new everything, new theme song. We are bringing the heat. So get in it, get on it while you can. I mean, you know. You got to do it. <laughs> and this is also time to be running the numbers, to which I would like to say thank you very much to Spider Stumbled for remembering that in an early episode of Unspooled, you, Paul, predicted that of the 100 films on the AFI list, 85 of them would have a Simpsons reference. That was your cold guess, 85. Yes. Spider Stumbled has been doing the, the numbers on this. He's been keeping tabs. And they say that with 97 episodes down, there are 83 with a Simpsons reference. 83. All right. I feel right very confident. Here. I feel very confident in this uh, that we will actually get that. Thank you for keeping track of that. Is anyone else uh, keeping track of how many times the, the word cheese dick was used? Because I think that we fell <laughs> low on that estimate. There's never we- enough cheese dick. You're right. <laughs> um. Now let's talk about It Happened One Night. Um, what does the Unspooled Facebook group think? Does it belong or should it be kicked off? They liked the film. I wouldn't say it was a slam dunk, but there is a lot of like, there's a lot of like, I'll, I'll talk about Ben L. Connor. Ben L. Connor says, I loved everything about this film except the finale. It sidelined Claudette Colbert almost completely and it stepped outside of the main character said it could build to a final joke. That said, said Ben, this deserves to be on the list simply because half of all rom-coms have lifted from this movie. 
And uh, Nicole Rogers says, one call out they didn't mention in the episode, but I think is interesting is Shapely, the creepy guy on the bus, is played by Roscoe Carnes. His son, Todd Carnes, played Harry Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, that's a deep cut. That's a, I mean, for us to pull that out, you're talking about relatives now, but uh, no, you, I appreciate You know what that is? What? That is carnal knowledge. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that is, I'm an onicle. Thank you for that. You know, um, this week has been an episode that I've been looking forward to so much. And we've been living in a very interesting time, uh, especially with this idea of do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? I think most smart people are wearing masks uh, to help prevent the transmission of the COVID virus. But so many people just want to go on with their daily lives. And for the first time, well, not the first time, I think this podcast actually parallels life a lot. Um, we got into a situation that was very similar to Jaws, where they want the beaches to open because it's 4th of July, even though there's a, a man-eating shark out in the water. And um, there was like a very popular uh, like meme that went around on the internet. Um, this is from Adam Goodell. Back in 2017, he wrote, the mayor from Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2. It's important to vote in your local elections. Uh, and that was the basis of our call to action this week. Um, no, and I appreciate that Adam is a listener. Adam, that, I'm, I am honored that a man who came up with such a prescient observation that continues to get more and more realistic by the day listens to the show. So Adam, hi. Thank you. And uh, so in keeping with that, we wanted to help the mayor get reelected. Like, how could he run? What could he have run on between Jaws 1 and Jaws 2 to get reelected? And here are your uh, campaign slogans, your your chances to, uh, you know, to kind of help get this mayor in office. What would you have said if you created a campaign ad? Take a listen. In the upcoming election, please reelect Mayor Vaughn. Sure, he opened the beach early, but he did everything he could to keep a slightly unhinged police officer from killing endangered species needlessly. All I'm saying is after the kinder boy died, vandalism dropped 50%. So I'm not saying that maybe the shark should have got him, but I think I trust the mayor on these issues going forward. Because of him, our spike in shark deaths was greatly outweighed by the spike in our island's economy. Larry Vaughn, as much as you hate that man, you got to love those suits. I mean, come on. How many people did that shark kill? Three? The flu kills more people every year. We're going to shut down the beaches for the shark? Vote for Larry Vaughn. Remember, he won't let the little kittener boy spill out all over the dock, like some people. Paid for by the Organization of Man-Eating Sharks. I will say, I actually enjoy the mayor's suits, especially how they clash all the time. His suits are insane. <laughs> I like the <laughs> okay, one. Keep him around so you can look at him. <laughs> all right, well... Well, Amy, I can't wait to talk to you about this movie. So let's unspool it, unspool it, unspool it, unspool it, unspool it. So my best version of the Jaws thing. The year is 1975. George Carlin hosts the very first episode of Saturday Night Live. President Gerald Ford survives two assassination attempts in the span of 17 days. The first attempt was made by Manson family member Squeaky Frome. Jelly Belly introduces their first gourmet jelly bean flavors, including tangerine, buttered popcorn, and very cherry. Union leader Jimmy Hoffa disappears. Hot toys are pet rocks, mood rings, and Hello Kitty merchandise. Popular films are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, 
The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and today's film, Jaws. It ranks number 56 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, down eight points from its rank of number 48 in 1997. Let's listen to a clip. Martin, you, you gonna shut down the beaches on your own authority? Well, what other authority do I need? Well, technically, you need a civic ordinance or a resolution by a board of select. That's just going by the book. We're really a little anxious that you're, uh, you're rushing into something serious here. It's your first summer, you know. What does that mean? I'm only trying to say that Amity is a summer town. We need summer dollars. If people can't swim here, they'll be glad to swim at the beaches of Cape Cod, the Hamptons, Long Island. That doesn't mean we have to serve them up a smorgasbord. We've never had that kind of trouble in these waters. Well, what else could have done that to that girl? Boat the belly? Well, I think uh, possibly, uh, yes, a boating That's action. not what you told action. me over the phone. I was wrong. We'll have to amend our reports. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Jaws. It is the story of a 25-foot great white terrorizing Amity Island. On Amity Island, you have such potential members of the Chum Bucket Squad, like Chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, Quint, the dangerous seaman with a past, played by Robert Shaw, and Matt Hooper, the friendly ichthyologist, played by Richard Dreyfuss. Also, uh, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody, Brody's wife. And Murray Hamilton as Mayor Larry Vaughn, a figure you might have seen come up a lot as a meme. It is, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. This is his big, 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 big breakout hit when he is but a mere lad. And it is based on the bestseller by Peter Benchley. Oh, and I almost forgot the most important member of the cast. It is Bruce, the mechanical shark. There are three Bruces, all in this film, all doing questionable performances. Well, I thought you were going to say the big person you were missing is John Williams. I mean, this is the movie that brings John Williams' music into the mainstream in such an amazing way. Yeah, he and Steven Spielberg have this really interesting past where, um, you know, Spielberg has always been like a, a classical 1950s, 60s movie guy. Here we are in 1975. We've survived a lot of the new wave films that we've been talking about. We have Nashville in the list of big films of 75. And you have Spielberg being a guy who's like, yeah, I know those guys. I hang out with those guys. I watch them drink beer and do drugs. And I stand around like the weird virgin nerd who knows them but isn't really cool with them uh, yet. And I love old classic stuff. And apparently the story is he heard John Williams's score um, for an earlier TV project. And he was like, man, the guy who made that must be a million years old. I like his style. Is he still alive? I'd like to work with him. And John Williams is like, I'm your age, buddy. Let's hang. I love it. And, you know, apparently the Jaws theme, which let's just take a listen to it right now because it is pretty iconic. When Spielberg first heard it, he thought that John Williams was joking. He's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's funny, but what's the real theme that you've worked on? Just totally did not get it, did not like it. And this theme is, I think, as big as the movie. 
It is. I mean, the clip we just played is from the very first literal minute of this movie of setting up this idea of here's a shark. You're not going to see him that much, but you are in his mind. And when you hear this rumbling cello, you know that danger is coming. You know, associating right from the very beginning, when you hear that music, you need to be afraid. Now, do you know what inspired it? No. Part of what inspired it, you might have even seen in the movie theaters before. Are you a big fan of Fantasia? I know I rag on Disney, but I really love Fantasia. And Fantasia is kind of unavailable. Yeah, I haven't seen it in years. Oh, it's the best. Well, in Fantasia, do you remember there's like this whole dinosaur battle between a T-Rex and a Stegosaurus? And it's like, da-da-da-da-da. And it's set to um, Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring. driving violent sound that is what that is what uh john williams pointed to as his inspiration for the theme and actually listening to that i almost wonder if bernard herman was thinking of that when he did psycho i was gonna say the same exact thing it has a it has like that bernard herman feel to it you know which is so distinctive and it's interesting because john williams musical career i would say is kind of separate from this theme right his music, I think, has a lot more of a lightness to it, where this theme has a lot more of an ominous overtone to it. And, and so it, I would never think of John Williams as a contemporary of Bernard Herrmann now, but back then I see it 100%. Well, yeah, and I think there's also parts in Jaws where you hear the John Williams we're going to recognize, you know, stick a watery hand up from the ocean floor and say, here I am. I I was thinking about that in the scene, you know, where Richard Dreyfuss and Brody go on the boat to like go explore Mm -hmm. for the first time, just the two of them. And they see the dead body in the water, et cetera, et cetera. There's a little bit. Which by the way was a reshoot. Yeah. Which was a reshoot, which we'll definitely get into in a minute. Um, But as they approach the abandoned boat that they find in the water, I thought, Oh, I hear a little bit of what's going to become maybe E.T. in this music. Look, Morton, I've got to go down there and check their hull. Wait a minute. Why don't we just tow it all in? We will, we will. I just got to check something out. Hit the lights for me. It's funny that you bring that up because I definitely notice there's a lot of different music that felt reminiscent of John Williams and also music that felt like John Williams didn't quite know exactly what he was doing yet. And I want to bring up this scene. Um, This is a climactic moment in the film. It's when they're chasing after the shark uh, for the first time. You have our three main characters out on the uh, orca and they are chasing the Bruce. By the way, he's called Bruce uh, named after Steven Spielberg's lawyer. Um, and they're chasing him. And listen to this music, and tell me what you think. Let's see how long that barrel takes to bring him up. Bring it on the barrel! I'm coming around again! Oh, 
I hear in there? I hear old-fashioned adventure. Like, guys, we're going on it. Here we go. Like, I hear, I hear excitement. I hear maybe even a touch of Star Wars. Like, we are a classic adventure. Well, you were saying E.T. before. I hear E.T. the bicycle's taking off in that scene. Oh, yeah. You know, and not to say it's bad. It it did strike me as odd, though, because it's a very tense moment of the movie. And it feels like maybe a wrestling of what Steven Spielberg is doing in this film, which is very different than what he does in other films. Like, it's that seems more apropos to what Steven Spielberg does eventually start doing in the 80s. Whereas this movie, it feels a little bit incongruous because it, it's, a, it's a tension-filled moment. It's, it's sort of, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a scary moment there. You know, this, you know, it, like, that, I don't know. There was a little bit of a, it just felt off to me a little bit. You know, that's so interesting because I do feel like they were making bold choices with the music that, yeah, like that I that I forget they made, honestly, because when mm-hmm. we talk about Jaws, it gets so boiled down to Donna, Donna, Donna. The one that really popped out to me, this is now the John Williams segment of the show. We're just like d- diving right into <laughs> it. But is the very ending, you know, spoiler alert, mm. of course, shark dies. We'll hear that now. We'll hear Brody kill the shark. But then listen to the music that John Williams plays as Jaws, this terrible creature, you know, scary, scary, bloodthirsty man sinks into the bottom of the ocean. Smile, you son of a... It's so interesting. I, I, it is magical again. It is. And it, it almost, I was trying to think of the emotions that scene made me feel. Because you would think like, we killed the shark. This guy, we've seen it eat a baby. And the death of the shark because of that music to me becomes, you know, mournful. Like you see him disappear in this red cloud of blood. It looks magical. And, and also it makes me sad for the shark i i'm i don't know maybe it's just me i'm a little biased because i love sharks to pieces i think sharks are amazing but when you watch poor jaws float down in that it feels like wistful like he was an animal he was doing what he could he's going back to the ocean now he's returning to where he came from it's curiously beautiful and i i'm curious as to why it's so beautiful it's kind of fun that we're starting at the end because we all really know what happens i mean this moment sets forth a domino effect that terrorizes Reischeider and his family for years to come. I mean, this shark not only follows his son to SeaWorld and his family to the Bahamas. I mean, this guy cannot catch a break. Uh, But I do love this ending because there's something so human about it. And maybe this is the Spielberg mixed in with a traditional horror movie. It's this relief. And I feel like that music echoes Reischeider's relief that he did it. Like, he's so, I mean, yes, he's got that line, you know, uh, smile, you son of a bitch. But there's a a joy and a laughter, and he shares that moment with Richard Dreyfuss, and there's this, like, tension that just drops from the entire film after, you know, about an hour on that boat. You're on that boat on the Orca for an hour, which is, I didn't really 
realize that before. Um, yeah, it's really a two-act film, not a three-act film. Act one, yeah. shark attack. Act two, look, go after shark. Yeah, and, you know, I just feel like there is something about that music that allows the audience to breathe again. If your audience is on the edge of your seat the entire time, like it's like, oh, things are normal. Like we're going back to our real world and there's fantasy. And I, there's something that captures me. And I, I just thought that like uh, Roy Scheider's reaction to that, like his laughter and his smile and, and then seeing Richard Dreyfuss pop up, it all felt right, even though it felt um, a little bit more magical or lighthearted. I mean, I think it's funny that you empathize with Roy Scheider and I'm empathizing with the shark when we hear that music. But Amy, that shark was smart and was really trying to hurt them. Like, it wasn't just a regular shark. Feel bad for that tiger shark on the shore that was caught. Yeah, that poor tiger shark. Yeah, I mean, this this shark was malicious in every way. I mean, it was very smart. It was hangry. But either way, I mean, I think that choice itself you know when you watch this film, if it's 1975 and you're in the theater, that music alone, as you're leaving the theater, says, this is not a B movie. You know, this is not schlock. Like, the, what would be the common ending there? Like, he blows up the shark, da 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 triumphant music, and now we high-five, and we did it, bro, or something aggro, you know, something like, something more pompous or celebratory. And you hear that choice, and you think, no, this is a craftsman. This is somebody making an artistic choice. You know, I, that music makes me think, like, this is not a B-movie. This is a movie by an artist. Yeah. You know, this lays down the DNA of our summer blockbuster or just our blockbuster because we have, like, multiple seasons of blockbusters now. And I think the better directors take all sides of what Spielberg does. And I think more of the commercial directors just take the showy sides of Spielberg, which Spielberg really balances here and creates this movie that I think on this watch, I was really on the edge of my seat. And it's all because he spends so much time on great characters. Like you care about these characters so much. And not only our three leads, but everybody in this town. Like one of the things I loved about this movie was the over talk and the double talk and the background talk is so funny and full and rich. Like whenever you're in a crowded scene, people are having conversations as if they are three-dimensional characters, not just hubba hubba, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. And I really connected to that. And I felt like even in that moment, there's like a masterstroke of Spielberg just keeping characters and people in the world alive. It's just not a shark movie. It's a people movie. Wait, I am so happy because I had the exact same thought. And I'm curious, you know, we've I've seen Jaws a gazillion times. I'm assuming you've seen Jaws a gazillion times. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I noticed the layers of talking in this film until now, until we've gone through this list and we've talked about Altman. You know, we've talked about yes. Altman making these films. You know that Steven Spielberg is going to be aware of Altman. And I suddenly heard the influence of Altman in this. You know, the idea of like rich textural things. I pulled a couple clips of just like all these people talking over at once. One of them is- I did too. Ah, okay. Well, what if we play the one where they're deciding what to do about this shark at the giant city council meeting? Uh, I just- uh I just want to tell you what we're planning so far. What about the beaches, Chief? We're going to put on the summer, the extra summer deputies as soon as possible. And then we're going to try and use uh, shark spotters on the beach. Are you going to close the beaches? Yes, we are. We're also planning to bring in some experts from the Oceanographic Institute on the mainland. 
didn't agree to that. Only 24 hours. 24 hours is A couple of the things I also like in that is you get to hear the mayor change his mind or back talk. Oh, no, 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 no. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're going to do it this way. But yeah, you, you, it's the people are so forward and center. The woman in the front who's worried about her business. You know, the, they're, yes. the, the, yeah, it's thick. And I was thinking too, you know, you're, you're aware that this is how he's going to do the soundscape in the movie from the very beginning. You get this phone call at Brody's house, you know, hearing that there's a missing woman on the beach. And I want to listen to this phone call because I think right away in this, you know, minute six of the film, you realize that Spielberg is not just going to make some schlockstruck movie because here's Brody in the front of the of the scene talking on the phone you know, in close up about the trigger case, you know, what's happening that's going to set this whole story in motion. And yet what you're really hearing in the film is just his wife in the background talking to the kids, figuring out the day. And I love that it's not dramatic, you know, the way that I think a B-movie director might have done it, where it's just only his audio. What? There's a missing person. What could be happening? A missing person here. I'll be right there. You have to take the focus off of that. I think you're going to live. It's not the prettiest Hello. thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah? Can I go swimming? Yeah, but let me clean this thing off first. Yeah, they usually do. Wash I just want to make sure you don't go past the, the jetty. You can. No, 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 no. I think what struck me about this movie is Brody is a character who's trying to be heard. And no matter where he goes, whether it's his home for the most part, but really outside, it's so many people talking. It's beachgoers, it's shop owners, it's the mayor. He can't really be heard. And I love that idea. Not until you get to the boat is there some calm where you can actually have the focus of these characters solving the problem. But instead, it's just like him trying to battle through the noise. You know, I never thought about it until you phrased it that way. But one of the very first things we know about Brody is he doesn't even talk like a local person. You know, his mm-hmm. wife is calling him out like, you don't talk like you're from here. So there's almost this obstacle of his speech at the very beginning. And he gets everybody's attention by making a sign, by like putting a sign up rather than like screaming because nobody's listening to him anyway. By the way, what is Quint eating when he scratches his nails on the board? Because he scratches his nails, then he eats like a saltine, but he's not holding any other saltines. Oh, no, he no, just no. has one saltine for dramatic effect. No, that he's actually having a Rice Krispie treat. That's one of the things that we love about Quint is that he makes his own delicious Rice Krispie treats using sea salt. And so they it kind of cuts the sugariness of it. I, I, I'm surprised you didn't catch that. It's one of the one of the things that us Jaws heads know so much. <laughs> Quint's Rice Krispie treats. I don't believe you at all, but I will take it. I also like that Quint's buddy 
you know, he's got the um, little plaid jacket on and the orange hat. He just looks like he's little Elmer Fudd. It feels like they're taking a tiny bit of a note from Looney Tunes cartoons. I love talking about like the relationship between the cartoons and the movies that we love. And there is something in his buddy. And then the people with the uh, dynamite trying to kill the shark with the dynamite. It feels very Acme products. And I have to admit, given where we are in the world in this year, the summer of 2020, when Dreyfus is muttering under his breath, oh, these guys, they're not uh, they're not listening to logic. They're all going to die. I was like, I'm with you. And also Clint <laughs> refusing to wear a life vest is to me the refusing to wear a mask of 1975. Amen. I mean, one of my favorite moments too, and this movie does such a great job of, of showing you what small town, small island life is. And I guess it's not small town as much as it is tourist town, right? Um, when he goes into file that report about the missing girl who, when he finds her body, you know, his secretary is talking about this class of Kung Fu students or karate students who are, who are like using karate chops on the mayor's white picket fence. And that's kind of called back even later. Picket fence. How loaded is that? Right. I mean, isn't picket fence like the symbol we use of like, I'm boring, tidy suburbiana. And and right after she says that thing about the picket fences, he goes outside of his office and suddenly there's a shot where it's just like picket fences on all sides. Mm. And you get the sense of a person hemmed in by these small town people and their small town wants wantings of everything to be just the way it should be, neat and trim and orderly. They they want people to behave. They don't want people coming in from out of town and parking where they shouldn't want to park. You know, it's insular. Right. Everything that they're concerned about, truly concerned about has nothing to do with the people. It's about their way of life. And I, the comparisons to the world that we're living in now, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, go out, go to a bar, food carts, all these things, you can see the parallels here. You know, um, They're more concerned about the business, the economy of the island, uh, instead of the safety of the island. And I think what this movie does really well is show how this does affect people and these decisions. Like, I don't think the mayor is bad. I think the mayor is, look, the mayor makes a terrible decision, but I also see a person who is so freaked out that, you know, his town's going to lose all this money that he, he rushes it, you know, he rushes to judgment and people are making these moments. And that's what I love about this movie. Going back to the characters is that they take moments to ground what's happening. And they do a great job of that when they find the first shark, uh, that's not the actual shark. And the mother of the boy, the second kill, is coming to the dock to confront him. This moment, which I pulled here, is really a heavy moment for a movie like this. Chief Brody? Yes? I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. You knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now. There's nothing you can do about it. There's 
My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. I don't think you see these kind of moments in movies like this where there's a real weight to it. I, I keep on going back to Seven a lot because I feel like Seven made you realize, like, no, this is these are people. These are not just bodies. They are real people. Exactly. I, you know, I love horror films, but one of the big problems I have with a lot of horror films is when the victims are disposable or when you almost mm-hmm. root for the victims to die. You know, Because there's a bit of that salacious POV here. You know, you're watching this beautiful naked woman, naked as hell, you know, coming up from the bottom of the ocean towards her. And you're, you, you are torn. You're like, oh, no, he's going to bite her. It's that tantalizing, oh, God, I don't want you to, but do, but don't, but do, but don't. And he, you know, he he gives a weight to that always. You know, you, when you see her body on the shore and people are nauseous and sick and you see the crabs and then, again, you see the boy get eaten. He lets you have that little bit of excitement, but then he reminds you that these are human lives that are being lost, which I respect so much. You know, I... I've never understood how horror films think that their horror films are good when you hate all of the people. I feel like in the early 2000s, that was so much of a thing. Like, here's a bunch of awful people, watch them get killed, and you're supposed to clap when they die, I guess. It, it, to me, I find that really inhuman. Yeah, well, it takes away any of the stakes. Like, because if the people, I think it's to protect the audience from, from caring, right? Like, the way that they do it in the Friday the 13th films, you know, they just slash through them or even Final Destination is its own thing, which I kind of love because I feel like that movie is just sort of like, we're just, we're just knocking these people off. Yeah. Um, that movie is just a mousetrap. It's on a totally yes. different scale. But I do think like it's to help the audience not feel the drama of the horror. And I think that this movie does a great job of, I keep on saying this movie does a great job, but um, of making it dramatic too. There are real stakes, and the fact that Brody, you know, we're we're really watching him. He's a character who comes from New York, from the NYPD, I guess, and feels like he can't make a difference. You know, there's so much crime going on. He kind of says this in in one line in the film, and then you see, and this is again, this movie doesn't lay it all out there, but then he comes to this island where he can make a difference. And at a point where he can really make a difference, he's not allowed to. So I think that that, from a character perspective, is so fascinating, too. This person who only wants to help. Like, he's not going to that island to chill out. He's not going to that island because he's burnt out. He's going to that island because he feels like he can actually be responsible and solve something. He he takes pride in his job, you know, and... um and it's almost like after too. French Connection, he was like, okay, yeah. enough with this shit. I'm going to go over here. I, I love the <gasps> casting of him, too, because you buy him as a cop in a bigger city. Like, you you, you see that. And he doesn't saunter with that. They lose all that attitude, I think, by making him not incredibly stereotypical. He doesn't feel like a big city cop. He just feels like – he doesn't feel inorganic to the island. Yes, they try to say that he doesn't speak like everybody else, but he – is a rational, thoughtful, uh, you know, doesn't kind of pull rank on anybody. You know, at, at certain points, he makes decisions that he thinks are best and right. And at a certain point, when there's no other choice to make, he decides he's going to go out there and kill it. But uh, I don't know. I like that they don't make him like many of these 
action movie is like a fish out of water. He's not a fish out of water. He's, I mean, weird metaphor to use, but he's, he is just trying to do what's right. I don't know. Like you don't get that. You don't get that sense of like, that's not how we do things on this Island. That's not like a runner of it. It's more like trying to deal with how the Island works, but he's not being treated like an outsider. Truly. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's an argument for casting this with a person like Roy Scheider and not casting it with like, I'm the rock and I'm here to save this town from right. a shark. You know, because yeah. the rock never walks into a town and you're like, yes, you are a believable human. I absolutely buy you as a person who lives in this town and not well, I mean, a person who lives like on- but that's like the Schwarzenegger, the Schwarzenegger from the 80s. Like, oh, here's this like Austrian man who's like, I'm a border god. I've always been a border god. It's like, oh, okay, well, all right, well, hold on. Let's just go back and figure out what's what's happening here. <laughs> I'm a man who eats 19 chicken breasts a day. But yes, I work in an office. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean, at least call it out. But yeah, th- like there is something so interesting about these characters and and you know how they how they really uncover what Quint is about. Like Quint is a character that I see in so many films, not actually Quint, but characters like Quint that they never do the backstory or they do a rough version of the backstory and I think that's such a realized performance. I love that performance so much. I mean, Robert Shaw in this movie is next level. It's so fun, although they wanted it to be our guy, our guy who comes up all the time on this show lately, Sterling Hayden. Oh, wow. Interesting. Sterling Hayden was one of the first picks. I mean, the the original casting of this was all over the place. They really wanted uh, Charlton Heston to be in the film. The studio did. They're like, we need a big Hmm. movie star. I think they wanted Heston for the Brody role. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And Spielberg was like, no. And Spielberg does not really have that much clout to say no, really, to a Heston. But apparently part of the story is when Spielberg was a kid, he would warm his way onto the Universal set, do unpaid work, do anything he could when he was like 19, 20, 21 to be there. And he was a bit pushy. So he would go up to Cary Grant or he would go up to Clint Eastwood and say, can we have lunch together at the commissary? And Charlton oh. Heston said no, and he never really forgave him. He was like, okay, fine. I will. You will I, get to be in my movie then. Charlton Heston, like this is 76. So, you know, there's a little bit of an energy. Like you don't want someone who exudes a cockiness. I think that's kind of the thing that makes this movie, you know, I think part of the fun of that second act is that you have two, and for lack of a better term, nerds. Like, you know, like they're not like, they're not super tough guys with this incredibly tough guy on the ship. It it adds for drama, it adds for comedy. It makes the movie, I mean, they each have a set of tools that they can use, but it, it makes it way more interesting than just like the expendables. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Richard Dreyfus's nervous eagerness to please, I think is so funny throughout this whole movie. Like when he shows up at the Brody's house with two bottles of wine, a red and a white, because he's not yes. sure what they like. And that's the kind of indecision, interpersonal detail that I really like. You know, I think a tougher movie like, I brought whiskey. Let's sit down and talk. Great. Right. You know, but even just the sense of like, I'm not entirely sure what's right here, that hesitance. And then the way he his hesitance draws the story of Indianapolis out of Quint. You know, the that suddenly Dreyfus is on the boat trying to act like a tough guy, showing off scars, being like, I'm one of the men. But he's got that nervous giggle where you know he's just not. He's just too, he's right. too excited. He's almost laugh snorting through his mouth. And then, and then almost the test of the tougher man is that when Quint gets to his Indianapolis tattoo, he doesn't want to talk about it. Like he's not interested in bragging about it. 
in its clumsy efforts of Dreyfus and Brody that make him talk about it. Like the idea that a real man in this movie knows that there are some stories he wants to keep to himself. But Amy, I mean, the story that we never hear is Brody's story. Because in that same scene, Brody off to the side lifts up his shirt. You see a scar and it's never addressed. What? They don't see him do it. Yeah, he. it's around 128.25 if you want to see it. Um, you can't really play a clip because it's just a silent cutaway. He pulls up his shirt and kind of pulls down his pants and there's a scar across him. And that may be part of this issue that he has. We don't know. He's so strong that we never hear his story. Wow. You think it's an appendix? I'm going to go with appendix. There's one time <laughs> think, I had to eat ice cream for a week. Oh, it was brutal. That's tonsils, Amy. That's tonsils, oh. not appendix. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, it's interesting that they that all these men have stories. And going back to Dreyfus for a second, I love how they are pretty clean with his character. Like he's incredibly smart when he dresses down the corner. Um, you watch him a be uncomfortable with seeing a dead body, which I love, and it adds a level of again realism to this entire film. The height and weight of the victim can only be estimated from the partial remains. The torso has been severed in mid-thorax. There are no major organs remaining. May I have a glass of water, please? Right arm has been severed above the elbow with massive tissue loss in the upper musculature. Thank you very much. Partially denuded bone remaining. This was no boat accident. Did you notify the Coast Guard about this? No. It was only local jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I love that scene. And then I love how they kind of just explain away his character. At one point, he's basically like, yeah, I'm really rich. And it, it lets you know as an audience member, like, okay, I got it. But it doesn't devalue him. And, you know, and, and to a certain extent... Shaw is so unimpressed by him. But when it comes to, you know, points in the film, they have to rely on each other. They do bond. And that story that we talk about, it, I think, connects them all. Because even before the story of the Indianapolis, you feel that they finally do respect each other. Like the team is assembled for this final battle. Um, Dreyfus has, has proven that he can tie a knot. Yeah, but, you know, I think... You know, in Shaw's mind, by the way, Shaw had the best character introduction that was not used for this movie. Do you know about this at all? No. Okay. Better so, than the fingernails? Better than that awful fingernail? Ah, I don't know. That is pretty that is pretty amazing. The scene is more reminiscent of Cape Fear, which is uh Moby Dick is playing in the local movie theater, and Shaw is in the theater, and he starts maniacally laughing at how they capture Moby Dick. So much so that he he basically walks the room. Everyone in the theater leaves because he's like, ah, ha, 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 and like just making fun of Moby Dick as being an unrealistic film. And I love that moment of this guy. I mean, it's a little over the top, sure, but what a cool way to introduce this character. And the only reason why they didn't do it was because Gregory Peck hated his performance in Moby Dick so much that he loved the scene, but
but just felt like I don't want anyone to see my bad acting in that movie again. So I'm not going to let you have the rights to Moby Dick. But I just, <laughs> I, but thinking of Shaw, there's another great Shaw scene. There's all these deleted scenes that kind of go to exactly what you and I are talking about. It's a lot more home life and uh, the person who runs the, um, the boatyard, like you get to see a little bit more life of Amity. Um, you know, very small scenes, but there's a great scene where Shaw is going to get fishing wire, uh, from a music store. And there's a little kid playing, um, like a flute and he's playing like the star spangled banner and Shaw's right over his shoulder in this like split diopter shot where you're seeing both faces in focus. And he's just going like, da, da. like, he's like, just like hammering this kid as <laughs> he's playing. I was like, Oh, it's such a great scene. Like he's such a, a fantastic character. I think I really grew to love Shaw more than ever in this watch. <laughs> well, did you know he's inspired by a real guy that you see in the film? No. Okay. So you know how there's like those two fishermen, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they're on the dock. And then there's the other fisherman who's out on the boat and you see his severed head. Yes. Popping through the water. Yeah. That guy, the severed head guy, the actor who played the guy who gets his head cut off. He is based on a local. They cast a lot of locals for this movie. You know, extras, the woman whose son is killed. She was a local. She was a local actor, acting teacher. But that guy, he's played by a local named Craig Kinsbury. And he was like the character of Martha's Vineyard. He was a total crazy seafaring man. He's literally the only person ever arrested for drunk driving a team of oxen in Martha's Vineyard. He will get drunk Whoa. and ride around with a team of oxen. He never rode. He never wore shoes anywhere. And he was this guy who was, he had been a rich kid from New Jersey, his myth is. But when he was in prep school, he um, went to Philadelphia he, with, a par- with a packet of trick dice, you know, that he got from a magic store. He played craps with a bunch of Philadelphia locals and took everybody's money and then took the money he made from this crooked craps game and just immediately quit prep school and went to sea. That is this wow. guy that Quint is based on. So they would just have this guy around. They would listen to the way that he talked. They would take a lot of his phrases and they turned his quotes into the Quint character because that's just who he was. And he was always like happy to talk about it later. He's one of those like bragging people. He gave an interview once to the Boston Globe where he was like, I don't know how the hell the shark spit my head back in the boat after he bit it off. But he was just <laughs> this huge character. He even like he even took his stationery when the film came out and he put his severed head on the stationery. So that is real. Quint is real. Hey, everybody. We have to take a quick commercial break. And just a reminder that if you are tired of us talking about a great movie that is Jaws, you can always go over to How Did This Get Made and listen to us talk about a terrible movie, which is Jaws 4, or as Amy calls it, her second favorite Jaws film. Uh, Go over to the How Did This Get Made podcast and listen to Jaws 4 with guest Jake Fogelnest. There's so many great stories about the making of this movie, and I feel like we could do a whole podcast about it. And as a matter of fact, uh, Wondery did an amazing podcast series about the making of Jaws. And if you like Jaws, it's a must listen to. It's a bunch of just, you know, how the shark doesn't work and all this other sort of stuff. But this movie feels like they lived on this island and it was very much like Caddyshack. Like everyone was there. They were partying a lot. This movie shouldn't have been this film or as good as this film is, you know, with all the issues that they had, but they really pulled it out. And I think I, or I guess I wonder if being in this community and being able to 
truly interact with these people made this film better than if it was shot on the back lot of a Hollywood uh, studio. And, and I, I think you can't argue that, yeah, absolutely. Like there's a flavor to this movie across the board that doesn't feel like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, I mean, one of those things is just Spielberg putting his foot down and saying, we are not going to make this movie in a tank. I want real ocean waves. I want that coldness to it. And I wonder if he regretted that. I mean, this is a film that I think the the shooting time was supposed to be like 55 days and they wound Mm -hmm. up having to be there for 159 days and it went 300% over budget because he was getting so aspirational about wanting it to be with a mechanical shark. Once he learned that you couldn't actually train a shark, he really thought you could train a shark to do these things. And Spielberg was like, oh, no, you can't. I didn't realize. And then and they tried the to do it. And even like having the mechanical shark that worked great in a regular tank, but not in seawater. Like they, they were trying to do so many things with so many variables against it. It's, I mean, also just shooting on Nantucket, it's a rainy, it's, it's not going to, whether you know, there's no indoor sets really in this movie. No, and from what I've read, it seems like the atmosphere was kind of dour. Like the crew were, yes. was calling the movie flaws at one point. Everybody in the cast thought the, thought the script was awful. They all thought it was terrible. Like Dreyfus thought his character was just exposition. He didn't want to do the movie. He'd turn it down three times. And he wasn't in a position in his career where he could just turn down things that easily. Right. You know, he'd done American Graffiti, but he hadn't acted in a great film in a while because he was getting this reputation for being a prima donna and he was addicted to, I think, painkillers or amphetamines at the time. So he was a bit of a mess. But even so, he's like, I don't want to do this. This sucks. And everybody was just storming around all day. I mean, they were making fun of Steven Spielberg relentlessly. A, because he was a tiny kid and he was younger than everybody else who was like being one of the um, head chief of all the departments, and especially like, transportation department was just on his case all the time but b he apparently had on this pair of bell bottoms that was like infamous steven spielberg had these bell bottoms and they were at the time apparently 250 dollars and that which was a ton for 1975 and they were covered in zippers and everybody was just like this fucking guy these fucking jeans and they just hated him because of his pants well, I mean, by the way, it just seems like here's a cocky kid who probably shouldn't have gotten this job, right? He His career was in a weird spot. He directed some interesting TV things. This is his chance, right? But, you know, maybe it's one of those situations, too, where by being out in Nantucket, the studio wasn't able to breathe down his neck. So he was able to actually really execute his vision, um, without anybody there. Cause I think that's kind of the rule of thumb always is like, if you can go far away on location, uh, you know, studio reps will not go visit you. Like, so you can actually, you know, you have the freedom to make your film. Didn't um, David but, Lean try that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah right. You're right. David <laughs> Lean, Francis Ford Coppola, they've all been trying that. I think his editor here, Verna Fields was really trying to protect Spielberg. She would just be like, I don't have anything to show you. We don't want to show anything yet. And it seems like, again, this is a movie that was going to be much heavier on the shark stuff. You know, you talked about the shark earlier, like you wanted to train a shark. But when they had all these issues with the shark, you know, the mechanics not working, they couldn't get the shots they wanted. They created more of the the Hitchcock version of the shark, which is like you don't really see it. Like it, it there, there are similarities to this movie. And I even think Psycho to a certain extent, too. It's like it's this specter that's looming underneath like you. Um, but you don't really see the face of 
the mother in Psycho until the very end. And I feel like that's what they do here. Like, But I think if everything worked, you would have seen this shark all over the place, you know, but, um, but it didn't. And those kind of forced issues created a better movie. And I think then you have Spielberg, who's actually a really good director, who may have been a little bit ambitious. He was able to combine. Like, so he took the, the things that were constricting the production and made them into things where he could actually show off being a great director, which is through character and through creating this tension of not seeing things and mixing in footage and, you know, bringing up, even when they brought up that shark, uh, that tiger shark, like they had to fly that up from like Florida. Like they, they, he was able to show sharks in a different way. And I feel like you got the fear of the shark without actually seeing it. So that last couple of minutes when you're really seeing it, oh boy, it really packs a punch. Yeah, I felt bad because I just assumed that tiger shark they, dra- they dragged up was a mold. You know, it was just like a dummy no, shark. No, no. I know. And then to find out it was real blew my mind because it looks really fake to me. <laughs> and yet, Well, it's essentially it was rotting, like, Amy. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, apparently sharks rot really fast because they're just made of cartilage. So they don't they don't even preserve as long as other animals. But yeah, that poor shark, I just I was rolling my eyes always at that shark, like, oh, what a bad shark. What a dumb fake shark. And I can't believe that a real shark died just for, for me to roll my eyes and think it looked awful. <laughs> you wanted that shark to look better. I mean, you know, there is something so sad about that shark. And that's kind of what I love about it too, is it it um I mean, I don't know if this is for the film, but it's so big, but it looks dopey. Um, and I think it helps the final shark too, because you it's just a different color and it, um, I don't know. I think it all leads up to this final reveal of, of seeing how scary Bruce is. Like, uh, it just does a great job of maybe lowering the expectation of it because we all now know what Bruce looks like. I mean, look, there's rides, there's one great ride or it used to be a great ride in Universal Studios, Florida. Now I think it's only in Japan. A great Jaws ride. But then there's that cheesy Universal ride where the shark just pops out of the water every now and then. And it looks I love that It looks ride. fake. I love it <laughs> one too. One of the happiest but, days of my life was I had to do like one of those pop-up like, it's the week of the Oscars kind of things. Oh, I think this was for two Oscars ago. And it was this British company. They wanted to shoot right behind that shark at the Universal lot. So I got to hang out there for like an hour and a half and just watch train trains go by and the shark jump out and scare people. And it was I the happiest it. I've ever been because that is one of my favorite spots on the planet is being by the Jaws ride. Oh, it, it's it's such a great, I mean, but I guess what I'm saying is we're so used to seeing the Jaws shark. It's hard to say like, what was it like in 1975 or, you know, to, to see this. And yeah. It's hard, you know, it's like, because now it's a part of our culture and we're used to seeing movies of like Jason Statham and a CGI shark. There's something so pure about the shark. Even the, 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 the plastic jaws or the remote controlled jaws, it's still effective because it's real. It's practical. It's, it's not CG and they mix in, you know, other um, clips. I don't know. I think it really, they do a great job of, of making this shark still scary as, as someone watching movies now and I've seen all those other movies, like it's still a scary shark. Like it's not as comical as you're led to believe it is. No, I agree. I mean, the first Jaws I ever saw and don't judge me for this is Jaws four. Oh and my it- God. <laughs> the first one I ever saw, by the way, you say that I could say the first Jaws I ever saw was Jaws 3d Jaws three, uh, the drive-in. <laughs> it was amazing. 
<laughs> I actually really I saw Jaws in 3D a couple of years ago and it made me really happy. The Jaws 3D in oh, 3D. Yeah. I grew up in a town with the SeaWorld. So, you know, watching people on water skis get eaten is very, uh, very reminiscent of my youth. But I even <laughs> Jaws 4 to me was more terrifying than anything I'd ever seen in my life. I remember so specifically being at my grandparents' house and being unable to get out of bed on the second floor of a house in Michigan because just in case there was a shark on the carpet. Oh my gosh. But I loved it so much. I mean, I'm 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 a, I'm a huge Jaws nut in terms of being a fan of the movies, the books. I I'll even stick up a little bit for two. If I had to rank them, I'd probably rank them one, four, three, two. Hmm. Well, I was, I was, you know, after watching this movie, I was like, oh, I really want to watch Jaws 2. I don't even really remember what happens in it. But you, so Jaws 2, not good at all. I just remember there's like a regatta and a chase and there's like his son's on a boat for a long time. It's it's not as fun. I, I will say, you know, what this movie made me feel, though, is also um, the way the victims were taken. A lot of the horror movies that we're used to watching, someone's doing something wrong. And, you know, that opening sequence, which is so beautifully shot, like on this beach, it's like this flirtation between this, uh, you know, very cool 70s guy and very cool 70s girl. And they're going to go out and skinny dip in the water. Like they're not doing anything wrong. They're not even they're not even having sex. They're just kind of like playing around in the water. And he doesn't even get in. He like passes out on the shore. And then you see this other child, which you very rarely see a child get killed. Like that scene actually really called out to me. It was like, oh, that really got me. Yeah, um, a child and you know, the, a dog. Apparently at one of the yeah. test screenings, like a man ran outside and vomited when the boy died because it's such a shock. You're not used to seeing it. Yeah, you're not used to seeing people who aren't culpable or, or guilty. And and this goes back to what you're saying, like making the characters unlikable. And look, no one is deserved to be killed by a, a knife-wielding psycho or shark, but they well, make the characters Well, I might so think of one person. <laughs> they make the character so detestable that I think it helps you not take in the moment. And and every one yeah. of these. You can disassociate. Yeah. Like in this movie, you don't know who's going to die. Like Richard Dreyfuss could have died in that shark cage easily. Like easily. the way the movie is set up and, and the way that Quint kind of dies. So kind of unceremoniously, like he. Yeah. It's fast. It's almost. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, Oh, that's how you go. It's such a, in, in a movie now, it would, he would have some sort of, you know, coupe de gras to before, you know, being eaten alive. Yeah. And he's, no, some just final line. Right I knew we'd meet like this, you bastard. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to even jump back to the first kill for a second, for, to the first woman, for Chrissy. Because, you know, looking at this hippie camp out, because that's how it starts, like a hippie camp out, here we are. We are post, you know, summer of love. We're post Easy Rider. This is technically, supposedly, Steven Spielberg's own generation. And you're seeing these like hippie people smoking pot on the beach. And I was thinking, you know, he's not making fun of them, which I would almost expect. Like, here we are making fun of these hippies on the beach. He's just showing them as they are. I don't know why I felt it was really striking, but. I don't know. He didn't feel like he was condescending to this group of teenagers on the beach or a group of yeah. like young people who are smoking weed. And then when Chrissy runs out, this kind of free spirit who's like out racing the boy, you know, and she's such this beautiful figure. I love how when she's in the water, she does that Esther Williams synchronized swimming move. You know, she puts her thigh up in the air. She falls gracefully down. And I was thinking how effectively this film uses Langor 
and chaos, you know, because that's mm. this beautiful moment. And then suddenly when she's bitten by the shark and it starts shaking her around, it made me think of The Exorcist almost, like watching those films where like a woman is just violently moved in a way that doesn't make any any human sense. You know, you don't move in that way in a film unless something horrible is happening to you. It, it looks like a possession. It made me think of The Exorcist, the way they shot that first thing. And the worst part is when there's two seconds of silence in the middle and she like grabs onto the buoy and you think maybe for two seconds it's going to be okay. Then it gets loud again. She's pulled back. And then the second she gets pulled under the water, it goes again from like screaming noise to absolute silence. And that silence, every time somebody gets pulled under the water, to me is the eeriest thing about the film. It just goes from yeah. death to nothing. Well, the same way that when you're on the beach and the boy is killed, like there's such, you know, that beach noise, everyone's there. There's not a care in the world. And and the violence in which that raft kind of explodes and the blood spurts up, like finding oil, like, and there will be blood. You know, there's, there is such a shock to it and you know they these moments make make a difference like they really really um they really are effective in how quick something can happen it's not like you know i just feel like that scene in particular too it it it, it it's like letting you there's an undercurrent of something but it doesn't like walk you into it. So it, when it does happen, you're like, oh my God, like, well, either it just, it, life is kind of snuffed out in an instant. It's true. I was thinking about uh, Jaws 4 watching this one again, because to me, the most horrifying scene in Jaws 4 is the banana boat scene in that movie. Do you mm-hmm. remember that one? There's like I a do. bunch of people I, on the We did a, a whole boat. episode, by the way, on how did this get made about Jaws 4. So you know where ah! I fall in that camp. <laughs> I need to listen to that right now. I'll talk to you in a minute. Pause. We're just going to listen to this whole thing. But yeah, in my memory of that scene, a woman sacrifices herself on the banana boat. You know, she puts a little boy in front of her so she can get pulled under and die. And I just remember being so chilled by that thought that the loss of somebody knowing she was going to get eaten by a shark to save a life. I don't know why, but it hit me more emotionally than I think any death had ever hit me in a film up up until that point. Mm. And so even though Jaws 4 gets a lot of grief, I think, I mean... I guess in there you're talking about choice versus randomness and the randomness in Jaws is is ultimately scarier. But the the tragedy is still there, you know? This is just yeah, me sticking up no, for Jaws I, 4. Sorry. No, I mean, look, I appreciate anyone uh, going to bat for Jaws 4. Someone needs to do it, literally. Someone, one person, that's you. Uh, but, you know, what I think all these other movies lose um, and not having seen two recently but seeing – three and four fairly recently is a certain level of humanity and realness. Like the scenes become much more like these moments of get ready. Here comes the shark where this felt like, and I know, and we're going to talk to our shark expert in a little bit, this movie, it feels like, well, this is what would maybe really happen. You know, Jaws four, he's, follows them to the Bahamas. Like he's literally out for the family. Like, and I'm, I'm just putting that on the side, but like the, the sequences are so personal and they're, you know, it is like a, a serial killer, like a Jason or a Freddy when Jaws is coming after them. And I feel like all these movies lose that thing where it's uh it, Jaws three has elements where I think they try to rein it back in. Like just a shark gets loose in there. But um, I don't know. It, it, like, I feel like, 
we've become much more about spectacle over just characters in an extreme situation. And I, and I think that's what this is. I mean, that's why I loved Get Out. And I think that's why Sense of the Lambs works. And I also think that's why Sixth Sense works too. Like all these movies that are kind of on this list um, because the horror, the thriller part of it is an element of a drama. Whereas I think a lot of the times now it's a thriller is taking over for all other elements. I agree. And, and I'm, you know, I mean, there's a lot of talk on this film about how Spielberg tried to take too much credit for it. Like Mm -hmm. Spielberg and Verna Fields, for example, he said that the idea to hold the shark back was his idea completely. And Verna's like, it was mine. And he would get a little, he would get annoyed every time Verna brought it up, you know, that she had been really crucial in, um, in coming up with the idea to hide the shark. To the point that apparently um, in the 80s, they were going to do a commercial that was like celebrating the great women who have helped make cinema. And Steven Spielberg was like, to his friend making it and putting it together, like, don't put Verna in it. I don't want Verna in it. Like, What? Yeah, there there was not the best blood, I think, after a while for him because he wanted to take credit for all aspects of this movie. And he was annoyed that she would try to take credit, which makes me just say, by the way, if y'all have not been listening to Karina's whole podcast series on Polly Platt, like it's kind of related to this idea of women in the 70s getting their uh, getting their achievements poo-pooed by the guy in charge who wants to take all the credit. But I do want to give Steven Spielberg credit because, you know, he claimed that he wanted more of a credit for writing the film and that he didn't get enough of the credit for like helping write the film. But he does, he, to me, he at least does deserve credit for reading Peter Benchley's book and saying, I don't like these characters. Like the first time he read Bench's book, he's like, all the people in this book are jerks and I want to care about them. I want to love them. And even if he didn't write the the dialogue itself, I think he gave the commandment, you know, in the rewrites to Benchley, to, to Carl Gottlieb, make make us like these people because I don't. I mean, I've read the original ones and like there's a lot that he cut out, which he needed to cut out. You know, the mayor is corrupted by the mafia. Yeah, I heard that. The reason why the mayor didn't want to close the beach is because the mafia owned real estate on Amity. Too complicated. There's a whole thing in there about about Richard Dreyfuss's character, about Hooper having an affair with Mrs. Brody with his wife, which, just to make you uncomfortable, I pulled a paragraph of the sex scene. Oh, gosh. Okay, go for it. Okay. There's not any dirty words here if any kids are in the room. So this is, this is Ellen Brody describing what it's like to have sex with Richard Dreyfus. The eyes seemed to bulge until just before release. Ellen had feared they might actually pop out of their sockets. Hooper's teeth were clenched and he ground them the way people do during sleep. From his voice, there came a gurgling whine whose tone rose, rose higher and higher with each frenzied thrust. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know why I appreciate that, but in a way she's almost describing him like she's having sex with a shark. I, I mean, look, I'm sure that that was probably on the level. You know, the studio even said if we read Peter Benchley's book twice or actually really read it, we would never have greenlit this movie. I mean, you know, this is the movie that shouldn't have been made and 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 really barely is. And it's amazing that and it actually makes me look to people like Scorsese that have these relationships with their editors. Um, you know, I think Quentin Tarantino does as well, like knows the importance that a great editor brings to the process. Like you're not a monolith. You, you can have this amazing help. And, and I think they often give, you know, you know, uh, Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino speak so highly of what their editors bring to the process. Um, It's true. 
And, and I think there was, because of this dynamic between Spielberg and Benchley, there was this bad blood on the set. You know, Spielberg would tell the press, he's like, if we don't make this movie better than the book, we're in real trouble. And Benchley was on set hearing him say things like that. And then Benchley got revenge. He told the LA Times that Spielberg was not that good of a director. Like he told Whoa. the LA Times, yeah. He said, Spielberg needs to work on character. He's a 26-year-old who grew up with movies, but he has no knowledge of reality but the movies. He is B-movie literate. When he must make decisions about the small ways people behave, he reaches for movie cliches of the 40s and 50s. And then this is the most damning sentence. One day, Spielberg will be known as the greatest second-unit director in America. Wow, what a fucking slam. And by the way, what we're talking about in this podcast is how great he is at character moments. And maybe... That is because he found the perfect alchemy of actors who brought so much to it. We talked about Robert Shaw being amazing uh, in this film, but you know, that little limerick that he does in the film, like he used that in another movie that he did with James Earl Jones, like a swashbuckler movie. Uh, You're going to need a bigger boat. That was an improvised line. Um, You know, there's a lot of little tweaks that I think so many people brought so much to these characters and the casting of them really elevated it. You know, so he may have gotten lucky by casting these local townspeople to add this color that the film wouldn't have had. You know, really, because, the, the again, if everything worked perfectly, you know, he it might just have been a different movie that didn't become the film that essentially creates a style of movie and, and launches his career into this, you know, stratosphere where he's like the king of it. And I think what he's so good at doing in the movies, we talked about this in ET is finding this human emotion, but this 1970s version of him, this may have been his, his like ultimate student film, like learning so much here, being in this town, being against up against the wall, no one believing in him. He may have learned more here than any other place. You know, sometimes the hardest situation grows you quicker than, you know, a lifetime of like real interactions. And yet, I mean, he definitely wasn't feeling that way at the time. I mean, the, when the movie wrapped, he was convinced he'd made something awful. Like, he apparently, he didn't even want to be there for the very last shot of the movie because Spielberg had heard that the crew members were going to throw him in the ocean when it was done. He hated the ocean. He didn't want to get thrown in the water. So what he did first is he showed up that day on set wearing suede. He thought, if I'm wearing suede, they're not going to throw me in the water because they know it's going to fuck up my suede. And then when he realized the crew still did want to throw him in the water when they finished the last shot, he set it up in the camera and then immediately ran off the boat and immediately ran and took a train. And so they were still filming technically the last shot when he was out. He was gone. He split because he was so freaked out that the crew hated him and they were going to throw him in the water. And then he got to a motel and he had a full on panic attack meltdown. I mean, he lost it. Like, he had to take Valium when he went to the first test screenings. He was convinced he had made something bad. Well, by the way, that attitude changes when the Academy Award nominations come. I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. It's a three-minute long clip. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. I want to play a moment of it. This is when Steven Spielberg hires a documentary crew to tape him reacting to the nominations of the Academy Awards. He he has two friends that are dressed up in, like, uh, tuxedo... Uh, shirts, and he is sitting there so sure that Jaws is going to sweep 
the nominations. And I'll just play a clip of this. Oh, I have something to say. I have a lot to say. First of all, these are my spokesmen. First of all, being the first Godfather, I have this to say. The Godfather was nominated for the Best Picture and won, but the director, Bob Fosse, a cabaret won. That's bullshit. You cannot have the Best Picture unless the director is also nominated. Who made the picture? Somebody's mother? The director. This man made yours. Are you kidding? Who's kidding who around here? This is a dark day in Hollywood. Absolutely. So shiny, but this is a very this is dark, a dark day. day for our pal. The greatest picture of all time was made, and they haven't recognized the, the director. director. Who made it? The shark? It's a matter of logic. Who made the best picture? All right, all right. Enough. Enough. That's it. Oh. I'm suffering enough. All right. We're suffering. No more. With I'm you. suffering. We're suffering. Cancel with you. my day. Right. We're getting drunk. Cancel my week. Right. Let's right. go on last weekend. I'm going to Palm Springs. On Wednesday. Right. <laughs> what? Only for what? Best picture, best editing, best score, and sound. And that's it. That's it? We named best screenplay? Not even special effects? Oh. This is called commercial backlash. Right. I don't know if anybody knows the word commercial backlash, no. but when a film when a film makes a lot of money, people resent it. Everybody they do. Everybody loves a winner. By the way. One of those buddies that he's got is like, oh, blah, rah, you erupt. We have seen pop up in a few of our films. Did you recognize oh, really? him? Joe Spinell? Yeah. Joe Spinell. He's a guy that kind of, he's the kind of, I don't know, narrow-shouldered stranger. Looks like he's in a costume one. He was in Rocky and he's also in Taxi Driver. He's the very first um, taxi driver dispatcher that has this conversation with um, De Niro. That, I might as well get paid for it. Want to work uptown tonight, South Bronx, Harlem? We'll work anytime, anywhere. We work Jewish holidays? Anytime, anywhere. All right, let me see your chauffeur's license. How's your driving record? It's clean. It's real clean, like my conscience. Are you going to break my chops? You don't trouble with guys like you coming in and break my chops all the time. If you're going to break my chops, you can take it on the arches right now. You understand? Sorry, sir. I didn't mean that. I love being reminded that everybody just knows each other. And it sounds like such an obvious thing. But the idea that Steven Spielberg, when he was starting out his career, you know, wasn't just a guy who only hung out with like the 70s weirdos where he was the slight outcast. They, they thought of him, I think, as kind of the robotic nerd who wasn't cool like the rest of them. You know, Milius, of course, being like, oh, but I mean, this guy. Isn't that a little bit like um, how Lucas was perceived, too? Yeah, it would make a sense that they would team up. They, I mean, they just consider them like these TV-trained, slightly inhuman geek boys. Even Steven Spielberg was saying at the time, you know, like, I don't want to be Orson Welles. I'm going to be more of a craftsman like Victor Fleming, who did, you know, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. And he was a guy who wasn't trying to make his vision at the very beginning. You know, he didn't have the clout to make his vision. So he wasn't like holding out and making these art films. He was directing TV. And that is how he met Joan Crawford, because, oh, we have to talk about Night Gallery, his very first thing that he directed for Universal. And they were like, okay, kid, you can work with us. Do you know what this is? No. I'll let Stephen describe it. And in it, Rod Sterling wrote the piece. And in it, she was supposed to play a blind lady in New York City. The irony was she's blind and she gets her sight back during the New York blackout. And just when she can see for 12 hours, it's the blackout. As the sun rises, she has four minutes of sight and she goes blind again, jumps out the window. Okay, um, the power of television, I don't know. And I remember going over to Joan's house, and she just assumed that Universal had hired a, a substantial professional veteran director to direct her, someone of her stature. She, they, she assumed they were going to match uh, someone like, like uh, 
uh, oh, I don't know, uh, George Cukor, for instance. I, I think she expected someone like Cukor to take over the reins and director. And I remember not, she had no idea that I was 21 years old at the time. Nobody had told her that I was 21. Big mistake. And I walked into this room, and there's Joan with bandages around her eyes, flailing her arms and stumbling through the room, knocking things over, saying, Stephen, is that you? Saying, you're going to love this. I've learned how to, I, I've learned how to, get around my apartment without seeing i'm practicing i'm getting into character for miss menlo and lamps were falling over the telephone came off the hook hit the ground with that terrible ring and she was kicking cords and knocking over trash buckets and it was it was it was brutally funny i, I mean i was just i didn't know what to do laugh or or just turn around and go back to film school and she finally walked over to me and she undid her her wrappings and she looked at me and she almost screamed and she said my god we can't go out for dinner people will think you're my son I just love that image of like classic, classic Hollywood. Joan Crawford was making movies in the silent era, you know, being a chorus girl, being a dancer, then being an epic person who should be on this list. Man, the idea of a no Joan Crawford list makes me sad. Which, by the way, I think I heard that Betty Davis was actually supposed to be in this thing, but walked off when she heard the director was going to be so young. Um, do you want to hear a clip of Joan Crawford in the very first thing that Steven Spielberg directed? Yes. My abiding concern, Doctor, and my singular preoccupation is myself. Eleven hours of twelve, fewer or more, it makes no difference. I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, color! <laughs> uh, look, there, I mean, there you go. Uh, look, uh, you know, works. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that kind of stuff is why, like, the the cool dudes didn't know if Spielberg deserved to hang. You know, they thought he was just trying to suck up to the older people. But this is also a battle that's happening, you know, when you hear, like, Coppola talking about Lucas, going like, oh, Lucas is too involved in Star Wars. Like, he's too obsessed with it. Like, there is a disdain at the popcorn film from the people like Scorsese and Coppola in that moment. Like I just, I, and I think the actors they work with are different. You know, it's, um, you're never seeing like Al Pacino or, you know, or De Niro in a Spielberg film at this time. You know, it's like, uh, I, I think that that line, we're talking about it a lot. I mean, much to your chagrin, like the idea of the Marvel movie, it's like this, you know, is it a rite of passage or can you stay around it and, and never go there? You know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's this battle that is always fighting, but if you can make a great, amazing popcorn film that has depth and heart, you can get to actually do something, you know, right now you can actually go off and make other things, you know, uh, but are oftentimes if you make something really great and independent, they pull you into making a, you know, a big budget thing. It, it, the lines have blurred a little bit more, but I think back then it was, no, we make important films or you make, you know, poop, you know, popcorn films. Yeah. And I think that that, that dynamic is why a lot of critics weren't sure what to make of Jaws when it came out. Mm. You know, yeah, did, is this I mean, a popcorn film or is this a high class film? And they weren't really sure. I think a lot of critics came in when they first saw Jaws with that hesitance, like, oh, here we go, a shark attack movie, some sort of based on a giant blockbuster thing that they were not expecting to see be handled with craft. I mean, especially if they'd even read Benchley's book. I don't know if they were expecting high quality literature on screen or anything. And so there was hesitance to like this movie. People recognized it as something bigger, gorier, more mass 
possibly than the average mm-hmm. B picture. But yet there was a real reluctance to see it as art. Some people loved it. Some people really did went, go nuts. But there was a, a substantial amount of critics who you could tell had like one foot on shore, one foot in the water. Like I'll read one from the Los Angeles Times. This is Charles Champlin. He said, <clears throat> well, I have no doubt that Jaws will make a bloody fortune for Universal and producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown. It is a coarse-grained and exploitative work, which depends on excess for its impact. Ashore, it is a bore, awkwardly staged and lumpily written. He calls the mayor a caricature. He says that Quint's actions, quote, don't even reveal the logic of madness. And then he says for Steven Spielberg, he says, Young Steven Spielberg, who was the director, shows as he has before an uncommon flair for handling big, big action. He and the script are much less successful in the man-to-man confrontations than in the man-to-shark meetings. Intimacy is not yet his strength. The ending is pulp story. Hokum, calculated, I suspect, to affirm that it has all been in gory good fun. The nightmare was only a dream. Still, I would not be surprising if Don't Go Near the Water turned out to be the motto along ocean beaches this summer. So, yeah, there's definitely a condescension there towards wanting to see this movie for being fun as hell and great. Well, I think, you know, when we've talked about Pauline Kael in the past, we have seen that, like, the embracing of a big budget blockbuster summer film is always a, a tricky proposition because are you supporting it at the risk of shutting down other movies that are more important? You know, like the way that she reacted to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark or just Raiders of the Lost Ark as it was originally called uh, is so dismissive. And I think there is a world where we should allow all types of film. I mean, we should, I mean that like, like there doesn't have to be one type and maybe this is the film that breaks through because right now I think it's considered a classic. Like there isn't lumpy dialogue or I don't think there's lumpy dialogue. I think it's really well-directed. I, it doesn't feel like a first attempt. I know we talked about the music, but the music's not bad. It just feels like, Oh, they were trying some different things. It feels like old Spielberg and, or it feels like Spielberg that we know and maybe Spielberg doing something that is a little bit different. Cause this movie is very different than what Spielberg normally does. Even working with adults to a certain extent, is is different. It's true. I mean, I imagine it's 1975. You've seen Duel, maybe. Maybe you've yeah. seen Duel. Maybe you've seen the Sugarland Express, but you're not yet flagging the name Steven Spielberg as anything special, which absolutely happens. I mean, I wonder what that tipping point is where, like, after this point on, every movie he does is a Steven Spielberg movie. You're a success, and you set up expectations. So people review you a little more seriously. They might also hold you to a higher standard. Well, I have to say that watching this movie, it was shocking not to see his name on the front of it. You know, you are seeing Richard Zanuck and, you know, oh, wow, right. This is, you know, before this person has power. And you look at somebody like Jordan Peele, his name is much more on the front of Get Out than Spielberg's is on the front of Jaws. And, you know, I think that's probably just the Blumhouse model of having ownership over what you get to make. But obviously that reviewer uh, has to be in the minority, right, Amy? I mean, he had company. He had a lot of company. He had a lot of company. Uh, One of the people who gave it a negative view was also Molly Haskell. She didn't like the film at all, but she did wind up writing a really interesting book about Spielberg later, trying to understand his career, even though she was never a person she felt like was aligned with him. She always felt like he made movies that were for boys or grown-up men who are afraid of women. But, um, Hmm. you know, 
Molly Haskell herself is um, Jewish, and so she was trying to write about Steven Spielberg through the lens of looking at his faith and his religion and how that might have impacted how he sees films and also really questioning the feminism in each one of them. It's a really interesting book if people are curious out of for a very different lens of a reluctant Spielberg appreciator. You know, she panned this movie in 1975. She wrote this book 30 years later? 30 years later. Yeah, at, at sort of being able to look back at his body of work more. But it is true a little bit. Like people have said on the set that none of the writers liked hanging out with Lorraine Gary. They just didn't think she was very nice. Or maybe they didn't like that she was married to one of the producers. So every day they would cut more and more of her out of the script. Yeah, so you do sense there's a little bit of a little bit of sexism happening in this movie. A lot of the deleted scenes uh, have her in them. And I was watching that and thinking about that character because I, I like the relationship that Brody has with his wife. I think there's some really sweet scenes um, that, again, ground the character um, and are playful and fun. And, and the scene that really spoke to me as a parent uh, is uh, is a scene where you know, Brody freaks out that his kid's on the boat, on the off the dock. He's like, get in, get in, get in. And you see his wife kind of take in everything that's going on. And then she's like, don't get in, get in. Like, I was like, oh, that's such a well-realized parent moment. Like, you know, it's like, they seem to be a team. And I was thinking like, oh, she must be bummed that she doesn't really have that much to do. But I feel like, again, the magic of this movie, the alchemy of this movie, she is very effective in all of her scenes. I mean, there isn't much for her to do in this movie. Like, just from a character point of view, it's like, you don't need his wife to really do much of anything. I mean, it's not it's not about his family. I mean, in a general sense, it is because the shark can attack anybody. But, you know, I think that they do her better than she would get done in another film. I mean, she at least looks like, a lovely, nice wife and mom. You know, I at least appreciate yes. that she's not made up to death or anything. She just looks like a cool mom. Like, I'd want to hang out with that mom. I'd want to drink Cape Cods. Is that what people would drink in the 1970s? <laughs> I didn't your... even know. But, but, I, but I love that she's like, let's go, like, let's get drunk and mess around. Like, you know, she's, there is a playfulness in their relationship that I, I often look to. And I, I don't know if I've already mentioned this, but the seven connection to it, like, it's the same way I felt about Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt in that film. Like, um, just like there's a a camaraderie to these characters. Like, I may not know what their full story is, but I believe that they support each other and they love each other and they're there for each other. Um, but I don't know. I mean, again, it's I'm not writing a character. I'm not writing a thesis on that character. I mean, it's not like a it's not a a wonderful character, but I feel like she edits together well. And maybe that's Verna Fields. I don't know. Okay, Paul, we've been talking a lot about sharks in the abstract, about Bruce, our rubber friend. I think it's time we actually talk to a person who understands sharks, who can stick up for sharks, who knows that sharks aren't just people who chase a family all around the Bahamas. So let's get on the phone. The shark expert, her name is Hannah Med, and she founded American Shark Conservancy. Welcome, Hannah. How is the movie Jaws seen by the shark community? So I actually had the pleasure of working with Wendy Benchley, who was uh, Peter Benchley's widow um, in a shark conservation organization. Uh, and she actually was starting to a project to show it got a really bad rap 
I think because a lot of people demonize sharks after this. And there was actually a really big push for people to go out and fish and kill any sharks they came across. Um, and then there's this other sort of split side. Like I watched it terrified, but instead of it making me and other bio future biologists, like scared of the sharks and wanting to kill them, we wanted to learn, we were fascinated, wanted to learn more about it. So there's kind of the two camps, like some people blame it for the downfall of a lot of shark populations here in the United States. Um, but there's also this other side where it actually inspired a lot of people to learn more. Um, and then they became pretty loud voices for the sharks. I mean, I'm just assuming, uh, Jaws, completely 1000% bi biologically accurate, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> by, the, by the book, a textbook. Uh, no, there's, there's some, um, some glaring, um, inaccuracies when it comes to the biology and ecology and behavior of the shark, for sure. One of the main things, which I worked in the cage diving industry in South Africa for a few years. So people would be very confused. They would always think they were seeing two sharks. Um, but actually you're seeing a second dorsal fin, which our Bruce, um, movie jaws shark did not have. So anatomically, it was a little confusing when you only saw just the one dorsal fin cutting through the water. When it comes to just the general behavior of sharks, um, I don't know if it needs to be said, but they, there's no evidence to suggest they target particular families or individuals in a family. <laughs> well, Jaws for the Revenge proves that that shark will travel. He will get to the Bahamas if you're on a vacation there. I know that to be true. Yes. Um, we do know they move around a lot. They're really big animals that like to move and cover a lot of ground. Uh, there have been great whites in the keys that we've seen. So now with all the tracking, we get to see where they go. Um, I'm not aware of any that have uh, been picked up in, in the Bahamas, but <laughs> the, <laughs> not scientifically at least, but, um, yeah, they they definitely move around a lot, but I think the behavior of I think they even mentioned rogue shark, um, yeah. that theory of a rogue shark that gets the taste for human blood. Um, that's just not uh, substantiated by any kind of fact. Wait, whatsoever. so that's not a thing that a shark can taste blood and say, I like that. I want more. So in general, like animal behavior and especially in sharks, they are in a three, like we're all in a three dimensional environment. So you're getting bombarded by smells and pheromones and noises and all your senses are going. So the very rare instance when they do get a bite of something like uh, mammal blood, which they don't often you know, get, sometimes they'll be lucky and get a seal like a, a marine mammal. Um, but in general, it would take repetitive consuming and very reliable like reward and benefit for them to actually change sort of how they've been wired for 450 million years. So a bite here and there wouldn't be enough to convince them to really go after or see a benefit in something that's just super weird and off their normal chart. Well, then I guess my question is, and I feel like I know the answer to it, but I want to make sure do sharks get a bad rap? I mean, are they, are we just frightened by them because they look prehistoric? They have these teeth. Like, I mean, do we want this villain in nature, like sharks and bears? They're fucking scary. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's twofold. Um, one, I say, yes, they've gotten a totally bad rap and it's 
not been helped by what we have to remember is a fictional, um, a fictional story with a totally fictional storyline. Um, but we also kind of have to be careful and remember that they're wild animals. Um, so interacting, anything with teeth can bite, but when you don't have hands and arms to hug something and you use your teeth to check everything out, there's a good chance that we could possibly get hurt by the shark. So one, Just like yes. a dog. I mean, it's the same idea as a dog. It's like you have to teach them so much not to to bite. I mean, yeah, they're they're. Yeah. I mean, I, I my sister in law is raising a puppy right now, and it's like, yeah, if that was a shark, I would I'd be very. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. have fingers. My cat sent me to the hospital for a love bite. I mean, uh, yeah. If, if my cat was a shark, this would be bad. But but can I say? I mean, dolphins are jerks, though, right? Am I justified in thinking dolphins are real assholes? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's. Sorry to all the dolphin lovers out there, but there's, I think it's like the dark side of dolphins. There's a documentary that shows that they kill for fun. They have sex for fun. Um, They killed like a little baby spotted dolphin. And I remember seeing that my whole world is like a biologist, budding biologist at like 10 years old, totally flipped. I was like, what they've been telling us is wrong. Like, holy crap, this is really like not what we um are you so i think that drew me to sharks because then i was like well if they're wrong about dolphins they're probably wrong about sharks too and you know it's interesting that you know that we kind of are judging a shark on its looks to a certain degree because we have shark week but i mean like you know and i think people just want to see something scary and be scared by it but it's like dolphins it seems so much more not to get off on dolphins but dolphins seem like to have that premeditated nature like you know to have that ability to understand what it's doing or why it's doing something and that like like a higher level of thinking yeah yeah that's kind of creepy are 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 sharks not i mean i'm I'm gonna say are they dumb or are they like very base i would say yeah so i think that's a better way of saying it um so like hammerheads with that big weird looking head actually have pretty big brain to body mass ratios, which is a little bit of a way that we can sort of measure, you know, the, the um, propensity for intelligence. They can learn different tasks um, and they can learn behaviors. So that's kind of like a little sign. So yes, they are a little bit basic. They, they evolved way before mammals did. So their, their brains just wired a little bit more simplistically maybe um, but they under they have complex behaviors. They undertake massive migration. They do these kind of complex things that maybe are outside of the way we measure intelligence mm-hmm. um, that we have that little box for. Uh, so the more we the research and the more we learn, we're more we're finding out that they're not super simplistic. Um, they're just not formed the way that dolphins or mammal brains are. So it's like we need just empathy for the shark to understand that they're thinking in a different way. I, I think that's, again, kind of a love-hate relationship with Shark Week, um, because if we could show, I mean, I've got terabytes of footage of sharks swimming calmly. They never open their mouths. They're never aggressive. Um, and that's how an animal acts. That's how the sharks actually act. So if we could actually see that more than the open mouth, rare instance of that, but it's what you always see on Shark Week. Like if we could switch those out and show how they actually are, I think people would be more um, empathetic to the fact that there's overfishing and they're facing a lot of different troubles. So have you ever had a, a lovely or a meaningful moment with a shark? 
I mean, I, I think I have. As a scientist, I try to stay kind of objective. Um, but there's there was a time with um, there's a open ocean shark called a silky shark and they're just beautiful they, they're named that because their skin and looks super silky underwater um, and she was a big female and she I had hurt my knee and I wasn't swimming really really strong but she kept swimming around me never making it like too close I could see she moved her eye around to watch me so I, I mean I wouldn't say it was a you know, crazy connection, but there was just a time where it was like, the ocean's been here for so long. This animal's been here for so long. Like I'm clearly just a little visitor in her world and she's letting me be here. So that was really awesome. You know, I think that, you know, we also hear about these prehistoric sharks uh, and not to kind of, you know, I think as we're having this bigger conversation, what is like, like this idea of like the Megalodon and, and things like that. Can you talk to about these these bigger sharks and we see it in Jurassic world. We see it in, you know, these like, like, you know how you're afraid of sharks will be afraid of this one. Cause it's even yeah. bigger. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, listen, Megalodon, um, several, several, several times larger than a, your average great white. So, uh, I think one they, they did show a picture of a little VW bug that actually fit through the jaws of Megalodon. Wow. Um, so we're talking pretty, pretty big. I would love obviously to see one. Um, I think they just don't, there's, there's not a lot of prey available, but back in the day when mammals were coming, like they kind of evolved out of the water and then they came back into the water. Um, there was just this crazy time period where life was really abundant and really diverse and something that big had plenty to eat. Um, so it would have been pretty impressive to see. Do you think well, you're going to ever meet any, um, Shark experts who are inspired by Sharknado? I have a valid question. Uh. Um, <laughs> possibly, you know, it, it did introduce a whole new generation of people to sharks just in a really ridiculous situation. So I don't, they were pretty good at including lots of different species. So maybe there's a kid out there that thought like, hey, whatever shark that just bit that guy's arm off um is pretty cool maybe i should learn more about it so hopefully um you know i think this is so interesting to to talk to because i feel like you know these animals can't have a voice right and we can kind of paint them into whatever we want to do you know it's you know it's whether or not it's like a movie like monkey shines or like oh that monkey is murderous or you know we we kind of really want to humanize every animal right yeah. and it's like like, what do you think that is that we want to humanize all these creatures, like to put it on our level when, when they are, like you said, they are animals. We are in their space. I think it's human nature to want to understand things. And the best way to understand things is if we can put it in a context that is the most familiar to us. So if the shark makes a nice turn around you and you're like, oh, that's what I would do if I saw a friend, I would turn around and I would right. say hi. So it's it's a lot of projection and I think it makes people feel really comfortable. And I don't think there's a ton of harm in it if you are kind of logical at the same, if you can kind of do both, maybe bounce back and forth. But I think it's just a, a it's a way for us to understand these, these animals yeah. that seem really, um, possibly dangerous but at the same time we're stereotyping these animals we're saying all <laughs> sharks are bad we're where the we need more shark defenders we need to get out there we need to change yeah. that narrative <laughs> and i have to ask this last question 
almost as revenge for Paul for teaching me about this song. But have have you ever had baby shark stuck in your head? Oh yeah. Well, there's that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I tried really hard to keep it at bay, um, but I got stuck doing a presentation uh, for a nice, great a great organization down here, and they really wanted to know about baby sharks, and I just couldn't do it without the song. So. Unfortunately, yeah, and I've even presented to a live audience with that song playing. So I'm By part the way, of the problem. Not that the- is, but that's a that is a positive representation of sharks in our culture. It is, a, yes. you know, there it's a family of sharks having a good time. They're not eating anybody. They're just hanging out as a family. That is very true. I will take it. I will take that for the win. <laughs> and it's such. And, and look, and we're teaching our children that. So hopefully, our children will go forward and carry the torch. That sharks have families, they have a great time with their family, and it's not just all about getting revenge in the Bahamas on, uh, on some sort of chief of police that, uh, that wronged him. No, but dolphins yeah. can get yeah. a go. Dolphins get a horror movie, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe there's got to be there's got to be one out there. I think yes. Orca, the original Orca, was like a, 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 a scary dolphin movie, or think maybe, or that's a whale. That's a killer whale. So it's yeah, something. Sorry, I will not rest until we get. A Jaws-style movie where dolphins stalk families and they roar when they come out of the ocean. (laughs) I'm 100% on board with that. Whatever you need, I'll help. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Um, It's been so great to chat with you. Yeah, this has been so fun. I so appreciate it. Let me ask you a question, though, Amy. Before we get into our our, the biggest, most important question about our yellow friends, do you think that Jurassic Park is the true sequel to Jaws? Because obviously Steven Spielberg did not touch any Jaws sequel. Um, but I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, Jurassic Park is kind of not a Jaws 2, but a Jaws redo in many respects with kids. I was thinking about that too, the way that you build up the dinosaurs before you really get to see them, talking about them, seeing their bones. I you seeing the skeletons before they become real to you. That reminded me a lot of here. You see illustrations of sharks, pictures of sharks, pictures of shark attacks, building up to the big reveal. And also, I mean, definitely just this idea of economy, like who's pulling the shots? How much is, how much is a life worth in an economy where you want to sell tickets to the beach? You want to sell ice cream. You want to sell snacks at the, uh, at the fantastical Jurassic Park Island, which I would still go to, no matter what. Isla Nublar? <laughs> yes. Uh, sure. Yes. That, I believe his name. But, yeah, right, but, but isn't that, a, okay, wait, wait, wait. But isn't that, but isn't that kind of interesting that here you have Spielberg, the man who's blamed for making money, once again, the emphasis of Hollywood, who makes films about like, oh, money ruins everything. Money makes people do these self-destructive decisions. Well, I mean... Uh, I I don't know, because at the end of the day, it's always in service of art, right? Like he's making these, I mean, he is working for these companies, but then he becomes the owner of those companies. Ah, it's hard. It's a harder decision. I don't think that Steven Spielberg is a, well, I mean, he is a business though, right? He's making these big, oh, I don't know, Amy, you've really stumped me. You stumped me. I was going to stump, I was going to stump you with a question and now you stumped me with a question. Well, then let me ask you another question. Do you feel like we were robbed out of Jaws 19? Ah! 
shark still looks fake. Uh, you know, Amy, I almost forgot about that amazing section in Back to the Future 2. Directed, uh, Mal- Jaws 19, directed by Mal Spielberg, I believe that the marketing says. <laughs> uh, this time it's really, really personal. Um, you know, we might be uh, we might be missing out on Jaws 19, but what we're not missing out on is some great Jaws music. Because we all, we talked about this earlier, we love John Williams' score, but maybe it wasn't, I don't know, metal enough. Amy, take a listen to this Jaws theme. Paul, I'm surprised you don't know this about me yet, but there's no such thing as two metal for Nicholson. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I know that you love this movie, but my question to you, my stumper of a question is, what's a better movie, this or Jurassic Park? Oh. Here's the thing. I, this is the case I'll make. I love this movie. It's so much fun. It's, I, it works on all the levels that we just talked about. But I would argue Jurassic Park has many of the same elements and it is better made and also puts forward a new style of filmmaking, which is like the CGI, these like realistic CGI creatures. It, it, as far as film is concerned, I think. Jurassic Park like ups the ante of like we're the future of film, you know. And if we're talking about popcorn films, you could say like you can make an argument. Well, yeah, there's Star Wars. Like Star Wars is a great popcorn film, and you know, summer blockbuster kind of an idea. Does Jurassic Park up the ante? I don't know. I mean, right now, is there a Shaw in Jurassic Park? Ah, I don't know. But I would say Jeff Goldblum. Would I rather have Jeff Goldblum or would I have Shaw? It's a hard conversation for me to have. Malcolm or Shaw? Whoa. You know, I'm thinking about this because I mean, my first gut reaction was like, you have to have Jaws. It's the one that established the summer blockbuster, but it did only hold the record for two years before Star Wars came in. So could it, could that line be checked off? I mean, the idea of getting rid of Jaws startles me. I'm I'm almost slightly more inclined to get rid of E.T., but, but. But, oh, gosh. I mean. It's a tough one, right? Because Jurassic Park, like, is another one of these movies that really holds up. It's It looks, and it doesn't age out. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, that's bad CGI. Or, you know, it, it has the same kind of mix of puppetry, uh, you know, pra- or I should say practical. And CGI, it's, and it has character moments it's a little less adult than jaws you know because the kids are in it and stuff like that but as far as action and it i don't know it like it's an interesting debate i think 
Yeah, it's a tough one. It's honestly not a, not one that I think I could even just like have a gut answer that I would believe would be correct. You know, because save this for our upcoming book, one of our <laughs> many, many debates. <laughs> yeah, that's so tough. I mean, part of me feels like Jurassic Park is splashy, maybe too splashy, but maybe that's just because I don't like kids in movies ever. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Mm. Maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm against the kids. I mean, I will say I was surprised that Jaws was in the 50s of the AFI ranking. Yeah, it's surprising that it dropped down, but I think Jaws is more of a cultural touchstone than it is. And this is what we talk about all the time on this show. It's like, it's a cultural touchstone that has its finger in so many things that we love and that we know. But as far as a filmmaking perspective or a script perspective, it's fine. It's But there are there should be room for great films. Like, this is a great film. Jaws is a great film. Can without I say something? Can yeah. I say something that I'm worried? I'm worried to say this out loud, but honestly, mm-hmm. honestly, I think I mean it. Do you ever get a little bit bored in the second act with all of the barrels? Like we shot him with another barrel. I told pulled those um, down too. Oh, we shot him with another barrel. Oh, we pulled that barrel down. Like there's a lot you know, of barrel. You know what? I think this movie does suffer from an hour long second act. It's a two act movie. Um, I think thankfully you drop that. Um, you drop that night scene in there, the the scar scene. That really, I think, refreshes you. But then that when they go back the next day, like I definitely feel like if you're pressing me right now, like I enjoyed it. But the last half hour of the movie, it's like, okay, it's such a small boat. We already know the situation. Um, there's there's a you're not wrong. You're definitely not wrong. It I don't mind it, but like. By the time they're taking out the shark cage, so kind of late in it and like, okay, like it's just, I hear what you're saying. I, I I hear what you're saying. It's, there's only so much they can do. You're watching the barrels go. Although I love when those three barrels go under the ship. It's such a cool visual. Like there's so many cool visuals. And by the way, if you get yourself to Japan and not that anyone's doing any traveling right now, you got to go on this Jaws ride. It's one of the best. Did you ever get to go on the cool Jaws ride? Well, I'm going to post the uh, Japanese version of the Jaws ride. It's so good, and it incorporates so many elements of the movie. It's the best Jaws ride. Um, But again, it was taken away because uh, people just don't care about Jaws anymore. I I think, you know, at a certain point, like, it's kind of going... I mean, look, you could say the same thing for Back to the Future. They took that ride away, too. It's interesting, like, these movies, like, I think are our kids or, or people younger than us will be watching Jurassic Park probably more than Jaws. It then seems maybe like we should it, let them decide. Maybe it's hard for us yeah. to decide. No, wait, that's not fair. I don't want to abdicate our responsibility. Hmm? I will say you've made, a, you've, made, you've made an argument that I think is worth listening to. Well, as you think at home right now, I will ask you my final question. Amy, uh, is there Simpsons? And I mean, of course. There are so many Simpsons, so many Simpsons. The one problem is that there's not that great of many Simpsons. Like, there's a lot of Simpsons that are just tiny little musical gags, tiny little quip clips. There's not like mm-hmm. a very definitive, excellent example. So what I did is I just pulled three incredibly short clips that are all calling back to Jaws in one way. 
The first one is from an episode called Radio Bart, where Bart pretends to be a little kid stuck down a well, and a man comes to rescue him, who's very much Quint. The second one is from Homer Goes to College, where um, Homer wants to do some pranks, and Bart interrupts his prank meeting with some ideas. And the last one is from the episode, Oh Brother, Where Bart Thou? Where Bart is trying to get a little brother out of an adoption agency, and he has an argument for why he deserves to have a new family member. With this hook and this hunk of chocolate, I'll land your boy, and I'll clean him for free. (gasps) I got it! We wait by his mailbox, and when he comes outside, we roll him up in a carpet and throw him off a bridge! (laughs) So it's a prank you're looking for, is it? One boy to go, please. Easy on the freckles. A ten-year-old can't adopt a child. (laughs) Oh, you think he's for me. (laughs) You know, the orphan is for my folks. They can't have more kids. It is so sad. A real-life Jaws bit off my dad's wiener. Uh, Well, I think, Amy, the jury's out whether or not we say this stays on the list. Um, We are down now. We only have three episodes left, Amy. Three episodes left. Big announcement coming up for Stitcher Premium that we'll be talking to people about. New season coming up. What a great end. We're kind of really knocking out the hits here in the last five. Uh, And we go into a movie next week that I have never seen. (gasps) Really? It's always so exciting. I have never seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I know who's in it. I kind of know what it's about, but I've never actually seen it. I know there's a bicycle built for two. Or maybe a bicycle built for one, but two people ride it. That's about all I know. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you. Like, what should we ask people to call in with as we are in our final three, like our final three uh, films? It's going to be, we want to make sure we have good, good questions. Like, we had great responses this week to our Jaws question. So, uh, what do you think, Amy? What should we ask people to do? Okay, I have an idea. You get veto mm-hmm. power, but let me throw it out there. Of course, Robert Redford went on to form Sundance, the greatest film festival in America that really changed how film festivals were structured. And it has very much a theme and a style of its own, the Sundance brand, which is evolving. But there is a Sundance brand. He named it, of course, Sundance after this character. What fictional character do you think should have a film festival of their own that we've covered so far on this list? I, I love I love this idea that like there's something so unique. Like So if it was like, Shaw Fest, it would be a bunch of tough, loving, rough and tumble, like kind of Charlie Bronson independent films or something like that. You know, a real, you know, a balls to the wall kind of go fuck yourself, uh, corporate America kind of vibe. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, or maybe if there was a, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of, uh, well, we already know that there's a fest based on um, It's a Wonderful Life, right? They're like, so we have to kind of go back. I, I like the idea of finding a character from one of the films in the AFI list and creating a festival and what that festival would have. I, I like that a lot. All right. Well, then that is your challenge. Pick a character from the AFI list and tell us your pitch for what their film festival would be. It's 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. All right, Amy. Well, I'll see you next week for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.